Psalm 109. Psalm 109 can be found on page 610 and 611 in your pew Bible. Now we have this week in Psalm 109 and then next week in Psalm 110. And then that is our 10 Psalms for the summer. And so the second week in August then uh, will find us back in Luke's gospel. Psalm 109, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, uh, these are hard words. 
These are words that while we certainly in some situations have felt them, Father, nonetheless, we we wrestle with them, we struggle with them. And so, Lord, this morning in our struggling and in our wrestling, we pray that your spirit would be our guide. We pray that we would make sense of this in a way that glorifies your great name. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this morning presents for us a problem. And that's actually a good thing. And so let's understand. Let's make sure that we understand the problem. And then let's make sure we understand why this problem is actually a good thing. Well, the problem is this. David's prayer for God to vindicate him contradicts what the New Testament clearly teaches. Jesus tells us that we're to love our enemies and that we are to pray for them. Now, to be clear, David is praying for his enemy. He's praying for the Lord to make uh, his wife a widow and his children orphans. He's not praying in a way in which we would think good Christian folk ought to pray. This contradiction leads scholars to reach certain conclusions related to the nature of the Bible. Some will point to this particular text and they will say, see, the Old Testament isn't really Christian scripture. In fact, they would argue it is sub-Christian. It's an interesting record of things that happened, but we can't really consider it to be the equal of the New Testament. After all, we know in the New Testament that God has a son and he kind of chills out. Some will go a step further and decide this isn't just about the Old Testament. This is about the Bible as a whole. No one in their right mind should consider the Bible to be inerrant or without error because it's a text that clearly contradicts itself. And if the Bible contradicts itself, then why in the world would you ever claim that it is without error? So, how is this problem a good thing? How can it be good to have people doubt the value of the Old Testament or question the inerrancy of the Bible as a whole? Well, there's two things that we need to keep in mind. First, let's understand right off the bat that the contradiction is not as strong as some would want to say it is. And we're going to spend the second point. If you look in the outline this morning on page five in your bulletin, you'll see it. We're going to spend the second half of the sermon dealing with that part of the problem. Why is it that this contradiction isn't quite as damning as folks would want to make it out to be? But secondly, we need to understand that having texts that make us work hard to understand how they fit isn't in in and of itself a type of proof that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. The Bible is the self-revelation of God. Think of it this way. If God is infinite in his perfection, and he is, did you actually think it would be a piece of cake to understand every part of his self-revelation? If God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and if God's ways are not our ways, if God is not like us, if his perfections are infinite, and all of that is true, then why would we think, or anyone who thinks that the Bible would not contain sections 
that we would struggle with is being intellectually dishonest. God is not like us. How he thinks about things are not the way that we think about things. So they're either being intellectually dishonest or they're not taking seriously the nature of the book that we're reading. This is God's revelation of himself. There will be parts of it that we will wrestle with. There will be parts of it that we will struggle with. That doesn't mean it is not true. It means that we are human and he is God. This problem then is a good thing because it proves in a backhanded sort of way that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. Now on page five in your bulletin, you'll see a big idea for our time together. And the big idea is this. Praise the God who vindicates his anointed king. Praise the God who vindicates his anointed king. Two points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. We want to praise the God who vindicates. Excuse me. Uh, this is an occasion for praise. This is an occasion for praise. In both verses 1 to 5 and 30 to 31, we're going to see David reminding us that this is indeed a call to praise the Lord. Now, scholars, as they study the Psalms, have found it helpful to clarify Psalms related to their content. And so we have Psalms of praise. For example, if you've read uh, about the, roughly the last 10 Psalms in the book of Psalms, you know that they all begin with praise the Lord. Those are clearly Psalms of praise. There are also Psalms of lament in which the psalmist is singing every day I got the blues, to paraphrase. Only mama says she loves me, but I think she's jiving too. Quoting B.B. King. Sometimes the psalms like the one we have before us this morning are imprecatory. They're praying for God to act against the enemies of God's king and the enemies of God's people. Sometimes psalms are messianic. They tell us of the king who is yet to come. All these designations are helpful to us because they let us know what kind of psalm we're reading. But not every psalm fits so neatly into a category. For this psalm is both a psalm of lament and an imprecatory psalm and a psalm of praise. It has all of them in it. In verses 1 to 5, we see the lament. David Praise to God. He asked God to not be silent. Why? Because wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against him. David has been betrayed. He's being lied about. And his enemies are wicked and deceitful. And to make it even worse, according to verse 4, the culprits are his friends. These are people that David knows. These are people that David loves. And yet, in verse 1, David begins by noting that the God to whom he is praising is also the God who is worthy of praise. Did you note that? Be not silent, O God of my praise. And then when we go to the very end of the psalm, we see in verses 30 and 31, David again reiterating that this is an occasion for praise. With my mouth I will give not just thanks, but great thanks to the Lord. And I will praise him in the midst of 
the throng. And then he tells us why it is that God is worthy of praise. I love the words of uh, one particular commentator, a man named Christopher Ash, says this. He writes, in the book ending of the psalm with praise, reminds us that whatever else we do with this psalm, above all, it should issue in heartfelt in heartfelt, heartfelt praise. We are going to learn something profoundly good and praiseworthy about God. We're going to learn something profoundly good and praiseworthy about God. Well, friends, we need to understand that Psalm 109 then fits well within the theme of Book 5 of the Psalms. God is worthy to be praised even when our circumstances are not what we would like them to be. Even when folks are lying about us, even when we have been betrayed, even when we have been betrayed by friends who later show themselves to be wicked and deceitful, even in the midst of that, God is worthy to be praised. In short, there is no occasion in our life, there is no set of circumstances that means that somehow God is not praiseworthy. I was thinking about this week as I uh, got the phone call Thursday afternoon to go uh, to the care center where, Lee, where Lee's body was and to be with the family. And I, I, I grieve, I mourn, I, I miss my friend, I will miss her more, I think, as the time goes by. But in the midst of it, I couldn't help but being really, really thankful and of giving God praise. Friends, our sister Lee has been healed. Her hands now work like they've always worked. When I went to go see her this past Wednesday, I would conclude, our, it wasn't a particularly great day. She didn't really... She knew she should knew, know who I was, but she didn't. And so concluded our time. I was praying with her. And I got done praying and she looked at me with a very earnest expression and said, you know, when my pastor comes and visits me, he prays with me. Well, that's good. He should. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. Keep your finger in Psalm 109, but turn to Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, we're going to see an example of this, that our, our circumstances, the context in which we're in, does not in any way, shape, or form mean that God is not praiseworthy. So in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, we see the story of Paul and Silas there in Ephesus. And there is a, a young woman who has a, a, an evil spirit within her. She's demon-possessed. And uh, let's, let's pick the story up. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them and threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, pay attention to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know about you, but if I had been beaten with many blows with rods, and then instead of being allowed to tend to my wounds, been stripped naked, thrown into jail, had my feet bound, I would be talking to God, but I very much doubt that I would be singing hymns and praying. And yet, what is it that Paul and Silas do? They pray. They praise. There is no circumstance in which praise of God is not an appropriate response. Psalm 109 teaches us this. Secondly, we do need to know how this is Christian. We've said this presents to us a problem. And one of the accusations that's made is that the Old Testament is somehow sub-Christian, that David's thoughts or David's prayer is somehow sub-Christian. So let's understand how it is that this is not as sub-Christian as some would want to make it out to be. First, there's the idea of David versus King David. There's the idea of David versus King David. And here's what we mean by that. When David writes, and when he writes to us this passage in Psalm 109, not only does he do so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he does so as God's anointed king. See, David is not just some dude. He's not just some guy. David is not just an individual who you can like or dislike, because uh, to be honest, we know if, if having read the Old Testament, there are lots of parts of David's character and David's person to not like. He's kind of hot-headed. And on one instance in particular, he's a deceitful, adulterous, murderous individual. But David doesn't write, and David isn't here merely as just some guy. David is here as God's anointed king. And so to attack David, and to slander David, and to speak things that are untrue and wicked and deceitful about David, is to attack God himself. David is God's king. To attack David is to attack God. When we were at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, uh, we had our, our minister of music at that time uh, was a gentleman who had a PhD in organ performance. And Tate's Creek has a massive organ. I mean, the thing takes 
the entire front of the sanctuary. And uh, when on Reformation Day, when we would sing a mighty fortress is our God, they'd open the baffles on it and it would literally hit you in the chest. It was, it was that much of an instrument. And of course, uh, there were folks in the congregation that didn't like the organ. They wanted more Bryce, less organ. And I was always astounded at the way in which our pastor at the time in which John Sartell would deal with this. John, the, the, they had a meeting and John sat down with him and he simply said, listen, I need you to understand something. God in his sovereignty has given us an organist. Do we really want to replace what it is that God has given us? Well, that ended the conversation. A similar thing is going on here. David is not just a guy. David is God's anointed king. And so to attack David, to question what it is, uh, or, or, or to take exception to David, is to take exception to God himself. Secondly, we see that this is a prayer that takes sin seriously. And verses 6 to 8, we see that this is indeed a prayer. David is asking the Lord to do something. He's petitioning God. He's not telling God what God ought to do. Nor is he asking permission to do whatever it is that he would like to do. Rather, David wants the Lord to be the judge. And David's desire is for justice to be done. And justice is to be a hallmark of God's anointed king. We don't want a king who is unjust. I mean, how many of us would like the idea of living in a society that would be fundamentally unjust? We wrestle with that. We struggle with that because there are days in which indeed we know that that is the case. But one of the great hopes of the American experiment and one of the great hopes of living under God's anointed king is that it is a kingdom that is fundamentally just. Thirdly, we need to know, uh, we need to think like an Israelite. In verses 9 to 15, and by the way, this is the section that most scholars really take exception to. They, they read it as someone who thinks of themselves merely as a free-floating individual. But that's not the way they thought in the ancient Near East. Uh, you weren't just an individual. Rather, you were the cumulative effect of generation after generation after generation of your people, of your tribe, of your group. And the Bible gives us a really interesting illustration of this. We're told in the book of Exodus that when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, there's a group of people living in the promised land called the Amalekites. And the text tells us that the Amalekites hate the people of God. Not have a strong list like, not they're curious because they're passing through. No, they hate them. 500 years later, the king of the Amalekites, a guy named Agag, wages war against Israel and King Saul. So 500 years have passed and there is still hatred between the Amalekites and God's people. Now, King Agag ultimately is defeated by Saul, and it's the fact 
that Saul does not put him to death that leads the Lord to reject him as being king. So Samuel comes in his place, grabs his sword, and hacks Agag to death. Well, 500 years after that, as the people of God are living in exile in Persia, one man, a man named Haman, the Agagite, in other words, he was a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, sought to destroy all of the Jews. You can read about it in Esther chapter 3. So you have a thousand years of animosity between one group of people and God's chosen people. And that's how it worked in the ancient Near East. Now, I have no idea what my descendants were doing in 1023. No clue. I couldn't even tell you their names. For the most part, I don't even know where they lived. And I surely couldn't tell you who they were angry at or who they were mad at or who they had a feud with. But in the ancient Near East, that was very much the case. David understands that the descendants of his enemies are going to wage war against his descendants. And if God doesn't put an end to it, if there's not some stop to it, it will go on from generation to generation to generation, even up to and not, might even exceed a thousand years as it did with the Amalekites and the Israelites. Fourthly, let's understand that these enemies are lawbreakers. They're not just political malcontents. And when I say lawbreakers, I don't mean the law of the land. I mean God's law. Verses 16 to 20, note David says, it's not just that they don't like me. It's not just that I want to see them removed. But look at the kind of evil that they're guilty of. Look at the way that they're guilty of transgressing God's law. They did not remember to show kindness but pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. They loved to curse, and so let their curses come upon them. They didn't delight in blessing, and so let blessing be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May this be the reward, verse 20, of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. So it's not just that these folks don't like the way that David is, is leading the nation. It's not just that they don't like how he's exercising the power of the throne. It's not just that they're treacherous or they're mad at David. No, these people are evil. And because they are evil and because they are unjust, David wants to see the Lord act against them. So this is not just David being personal, uh, being, being petty at some personal slight. No, again, this is dealing seriously with the issue of the existence of evil. Lord, you've got to do something. You've got to do something because there are evil, unjust men who are at work in your world. By the way, friends, that's not just a prayer. It's not just a question in the Old Testament. It's a prayer in the New Testament. Time and time again in the book of Revelation, we, we see the question, we see the prayer, how long, O oh Lord, is this 
now when you are going to vindicate your people? Is this now when you're going to vindicate your name? Friends, this isn't David being petty. This is not that David somehow got triggered by harsh words that people said and they didn't like him because they didn't get his pronouns right. No, this is David crying out to God to actually deal with evil. To bring judgment to those who are wicked and unjust. And the last thing we need to see in understanding how this is Christian is that David's prayer as he comes to the end is actually God-centered. It's not David-centered. In fact, when you read what David says about himself, he says, I'm gone like a shadow in the evening. I am poor and needy. I'm shaken off like a locust. My heart is stricken within me. My knees are weak. My body has become gaunt. I'm the object of scorn. When they see me, they wag their heads. David is not saying, hey, God, I need you to lift me up so that I can open a can of whoop on some people who seriously need it. No, David is saying, God, I can't deal with this. I need you to be who you are. I need you to vindicate your people. And so David's prayer is not, hey, God, if it's got to be, it's up to me. David's prayer is, God, would you please do what only you can do? Because I'm poor and needy. I am gaunt. My knees are weak. My body, uh, I'm an object of scorn. I can't deal with this, but God, you know what? I'm trusting that you can. I'm trusting that you will actually vindicate your servant. Look at verses 26 and 27. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them curse, but you, or excuse me, uh, verse 27, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. David is not praying for himself that God would empower him to go and do whatever it is that he wants to do to his enemies. No, David is saying, God, would you please deal with evil because it's beyond me. I can't do it. but you are the God of steadfast love. And so let them know when your judgment comes upon them, when your wrath comes upon them, let them know that this is your hand, that, oh Lord, you have done this. God, would you please act? Because I can't. Friends, that's exactly the hope that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica in our New Testament reading for this morning. In verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, hey, you know, we boast about you. And we boast about you in your steadfastness and your faith in all the persecutions and all the afflictions that you've been having. And then Paul goes on to say, and listen, these persecutions, these afflictions, these things are evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Paul says, so listen, don't worry about vindicating yourself because you can't. And don't sit there and go, hey, God, don't you care that we're being persecuted? Don't you care that we're being afflicted? Don't you care that evil and wicked individuals are having their way, that they're persecuting your church? Don't you care about that? And so to give them comfort, 
Paul tells them about the judgment that is coming when Christ comes again. It will not be the church standing up for itself. It will not be the church voting in the right person who will then stand in the way of all the cultural bullies who want to sideline the church. No, in fact, persecution and affliction are actually signs of God's favor. No. What's going to happen is that when the Lord returns, he will vindicate his people. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, it is not sub-Christian to pray that God would deal with evil. It's not sub-Christian to think that God is going to judge those who are opposed to his king and to his people. I love how Paul says it, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. See, more often than not, the folks who don't like the idea that David is praying what he's praying, they also don't like the idea of Jesus coming with flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, there's more going on in Psalm 109. Yes, Psalm 109 is a psalm of lament. It is a psalm of praise. It is an imprecatory psalm, but it is also a messianic psalm. For Psalm 109 reminds us that David is not the only king anointed by God who will suffer persecution at the hands of evil and wicked men. David is not the only king who will be betrayed by someone who's close to him, someone whom he loved. And David is not the only king who will ask God the Father to deliver him. So this morning we are reminded of that. We are reminded of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ when his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we are reminded that God the Father vindicated his anointed king. And there is coming a day in which Christ will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the hope that is ours in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that on those occasions in which it seems like grief and lament and mourning or even anger, it seems like those are our only options. Father, we thank you that there is no circumstance within all of the human experience that somehow precludes praise. Father, when things are good, we praise you. When things are bad, we praise you. When we are healthy, we praise you. When we are sick, we praise you.
Father, we, we bless you that who you are transcends all of our circumstances. It transcends, you transcend all the things that are going on in our life. And Father, we, we thank you uh, for the hope that we have to cling to, that the gospel does indeed transcend any context, any circumstance in which we find ourselves. So we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.